Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 4, Medical Education in Colonial Contexts. The paper, Medical Education in 19th Century Australia, was given by Lawrence Geary of University College Cork. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thanks for the introduction. Okay, my topic this morning is medical education in 19th century Australia, uh, focusing particularly on Melbourne University. Three university schools of medicine were established in Australia in the 19th century. The first at Melbourne in 1862, followed by Sydney and Adelaide in 1883 and 1885, respectively. Prior to the establishment of the Melbourne School, that is, for the first three quarters of a century of white occupation of Australia, residents who wished to pursue a medical career had to obtain their qualifications overseas. Many were precluded from doing this because of distance, time, inconvenience and the expense involved. The Melbourne Medical School opened inauspiciously at the beginning of the 1862 academic year. There were two teachers, three enrolled students and no buildings. Towards the end of that year, 1862, George Britton Halford arrived from England to take up the chair of general anatomy, physiology and pathology. Halford, who was regarded as one of the most distinguished experimental physiologists of the day, was expected to lend tone and character to the medical school and to add luster to the university generally. In May 1863, some six months after his arrival in Melbourne, Halford inaugurated his course of lectures by means of the traditional introductory address, one that proved to be verbose, rhetorical and platitudinous. It was also extremely short on the specifics of medical education that one might have expected on such an historic occasion. Shortly afterwards, Halford conducted the first anatomy class in the Southern Hemisphere. It took place in a hastily converted shed in his own backyard with three medical students and two qualified practitioners in attendance. The Melbourne Medical School gradually developed from these humble beginnings, but it was its counterpart in Sydney that was most immediately successful of the three 19th century Australian teaching and licensing bodies. This is almost entirely due to the determination and energy of the 26-year-old Foundation Professor of Anatomy and Physiology, the Scottish-born and educated T.P. Anderson Stewart. Anderson Stewart's ability, ambition and vision were matched only by his arrogance and conceit. (laughs) This formidable personality overrode all opposition, recruited staff and students, devised a curriculum and launched a building programme which was completed in 1889, some six years after the school was founded. By the close of the 19th century, 
Anderson Stewart had placed the Sydney Medical School on a very firm foundation. By then, and in sharp contrast, the Adelaide School was in considerable disarray. It had encountered many crises, financial and otherwise, since its establishment in 1885. The South Australian government was unsympathetic, and relations between the government and the school's component parts, that is the university and the Adelaide Hospital, were fraught. Matters came to a head in the mid-1890s over claims of political jobbery in the filling of a nursing vacancy. And this dispute eventually involved the city's medical and political communities and the public generally. Finally, in March 1896, the government sacked the hospital board and the honorary staff resigned in sympathy. It was another six years before they returned, and thus between 1896 and 1902, all clinical teaching at the Adelaide Hospital was suspended. Several of the Adelaide students transferred to the University of Melbourne in the neighbouring colony of Victoria to complete their courses, only to discover that Australia's oldest medical school had its own problems. During the later 19th and early 20th centuries, almost every aspect of the school's activities, including the curriculum, teaching and the examination system, came under review and frequently drew adverse comment much of it justified. I propose to look now at, briefly at these different features, beginning with the Melbourne Medical Curriculum. Professor James Paget, renowned professor of anatomy, physiology and pathology at St. Bartholomew's Hospital Medical School in London, was consulted on the curriculum and examination system that should be adopted at the new Melbourne School. He suggested that students be required to pass a preliminary examination in arithmetic, Latin, English, and the rudiments of one other modern language or any one branch of science before embarking on a four-year professional course. The first year should be devoted to scientific subjects, while the remainder ought to be spent at one or more hospitals and medical schools recognised as fit places of education. Paget added that diplomas should only be awarded to those who had passed three professional examinations. His advice was unceremoniously rejected by the fledgling colonial university, for reasons I'll come back to later. Melbourne insisted on a five-year course, the first of which was devoted almost entirely to literature and mathematics. And there were also five examinations, one at the end of each academic year, The aim was to combine a sound liberal education with a comprehensive professional training. Such educational demands and expectations gave rise to much subsequent discontent, and at various times the Melbourne curriculum was criticised for being too literary, too scientific and too technical, and more generally for being too exacting, exhausting and overcrowded. Basically, the course is badly structured, and major revisions in 1887 and 1900 failed to rectify the problem. The course was widely regarded as inordinately long and expensive. 
and in the closing decades of the 19th century, students complained that hospital and university fees in Melbourne were twice, and in one case, five times those of the United Kingdom. Furthermore, students were dissatisfied with the quality of this extravagantly priced instruction. They were particularly critical of clinical teaching at the Melbourne Hospital, a situation for which both the hospital and the university were to blame. There was no traditional link between the two institutions, as there was in the United Kingdom, or between the University of Sydney and the Prince Alfred Hospital, for instance. The difficulties in Melbourne arose from the ill-defined, unsympathetic, often hostile relationship that existed between the university and the hospital. This was a feature of all Australian and New Zealand medical schools, with the exception of Sydney. But in Melbourne, the problem was more pronounced and intractable. In his presidential address to the Fourth Intercolonial Medical Congress of Australasia in 1896, F.C. Batchelor of Dunedin claimed that the relationship between the University of Melbourne and its teaching hospital was the worst of its kind in the British Empire. When it was first proposed to establish a medical school at Melbourne, it was envisaged that there would be close cooperation between the university and the Melbourne Hospital. (coughs) However, the latter, that is the Melbourne Hospital, was a charitable institution, and there was no mention of teaching in its foundation chapter. It was with some misgivings that the regulations were amended to admit students. The university was not represented on the board of management of the Melbourne Hospital or on the city's lying-in hospital and had no say in the selection of the medical staff of either institution. The staff were publicly elected every fourth year by the subscribers to the hospital, which meant that students were entirely dependent for practical instruction on physicians and surgeons who had been arbitrarily appointed and whose ability and commitment to teaching had rarely, if ever, been ascertained beforehand. The Melbourne experience was that honorees generally treated students indifferently and made little effort to facilitate their practical training. The subscribers continued to elect the honorary medical officers until 1910. In that year, After a prolonged campaign for reform, their electoral rights passed to the hospital's management committee. Thereafter, candidates for honorary appointments were recommended by an advisory board representing the management committee, the medical staff, the university council, and the faculty of medicine. Students also complained about the excessive number and difficulty of examinations and the structural rigidity of the examination system generally. Unlike the United Kingdom, where three professional examinations were the norm, Melbourne students had to pass a test at the end of each of the five years of the curriculum. These examinations were notoriously difficult and were characterised by a high failure rate. On one occasion, February 1885, all ten final-year students 
who had been referred from the previous November, failed. A result that was described by one unhappy individual as wholesale slaughter. And one that became immortalised in student folklore as the 50-year fiasco. So I want to turn now and just have a look at the status of colonial medical qualifications when compared to those of the United Kingdom. In late 1867, five years after the establishment of the Melbourne School of Medicine, the New Zealand Parliament refused to recognise the Melbourne Medical Degree. During the third reading of the Colonies Medical Bill, the Honourable Dr Buchanan said he was unable to evaluate the Melbourne Diploma, but he was convinced that it could not possibly be as good as one from the United Kingdom, simply because, he said, Melbourne did not have the same facilities. A more telling criticism was made in August 1881 by a Melbourne medical practitioner who had opted for training in the United Kingdom. He contended that the majority of Australasian students would do likewise if they had the opportunity and the means of doing so. He praised the Melbourne Medical School for providing its students with a good basic education but insisted that students returned from the United Kingdom convinced that there were better teachers and methods of instruction in the United Kingdom. And this is particularly the case in relation to clinical teaching. More significantly, the General Council of Medical Education and Registration of the United Kingdom refused to recognise Melbourne medical degrees until 1890, that is almost 30 years after the foundation of the school. And in 1890, they only recognised them because of the personal intervention of Professor H.B. Allen, who was Dean of the Melbourne Medical Faculty. Anti-colonial prejudice featured in the colonies as it did at home, as distant exiles and their offspring referred nostalgically to the United Kingdom. There were many colonists who believed that their own institutions were axiomatically inferior to those of the United Kingdom. And they disparaged all things Australian simply because they were colonial. The need to overcome prejudice and a widespread denigratory disposition dictated the imposition of a five-year course, a testing curriculum, and difficult examinations in the Melbourne Medical School, and also dictated similarly high standards at the Sydney School. Now, as a result of these testing standards, which were implemented to overcome this perception of inferiority, the reverse tended to happen among some medical educators in Australia, and they came to regard their own degrees as superior to most of the qualifications available in the United Kingdom. And this was certainly the sentiment that permeated the Melbourne faculty at the close of the 19th century. When pressed on why so many students left the university and took their qualifications elsewhere, Professor Allen, the dean of the faculty, claimed that they did so because they had failed to measure up to Melbourne's exacting standards, and that they had found the course or the examinations too difficult. In an interesting comparative exercise, Allen stated that the majority of students who failed at Melbourne 
went to Scotland to present for the examination of the Edinburgh Colleges of Surgeons and Physicians. Some of the better Melbourne students undertook the examination of the London Colleges, where the standard was higher than in Scotland, this according to Alan now, but still substantially lower than it was in Melbourne. Only a handful of Melbourne students, the very best, went to the Scottish universities, which Alan claimed were on a par with Melbourne University. He added that the highest English degree was the MD of London University. But Melbourne students had never attempted it because, to use Alan's own words, the men who were good enough for that would take their degrees in Melbourne. Now, Alan and his faculty colleagues drew a sharp distinction between university graduates and licentiates, and they were generally contemptuous of the latter. Alan's assertion that it was the demands of the medical course that compelled many of the less able students to leave Melbourne and seek easier but inferior qualifications elsewhere was disingenuous. Failure at Melbourne was a compelling, but not the only reason why students studied and qualified in the United Kingdom and in other parts of Europe. First of all, colonial universities did not have the cachet of the older European institutions. In comparison to the British and Irish medical schools, those in 19th century Australia were largely unproven. Some students and their families believed that Scottish medical teaching was superior and accordingly that a Scottish degree was more valuable. Furthermore, the wealthy had traditionally sent their sons to the older European universities, thereby combining the experience of travel with a prestigious degree. It was not unusual for immigrant parents in Australia, among them Presbyterian clergymen and United Kingdom trained doctors, to return their children to their own university or to another university in their native country. There was another factor as well, and this was there was a great consciousness of distance in the 19th century, and Australasian isolation was seen as a major professional disadvantage for colonial teachers and students alike. It was conceded that the most able and enterprising would always be drawn to the older European centres to observe and to learn from the leaders of the profession there, and to pit themselves intellectually against European students. And finally, and I've referred to this before, the failure of the United Kingdom government to recognise colonial medical degrees until 1890 placed Melbourne qualification under what one Melbourne teacher called a ban of inferiority. Melbourne University had introduced a five-year medical curriculum long before such a feature became obligatory in the United Kingdom. The length of the course beguiled contemporaries and later commentators alike into claiming that it was superior to any then available in the English-speaking world. The assumption was fostered that duration was synonymous with excellence. High standards were equated with long and difficult courses and testing examinations. But the content of the curriculum 
and the quality of teaching were insufficiently analysed. While difficult examinations are in themselves meaningless unless students are adequately instructed and capable of passing them. Melbourne Medical School would only begin to realise its full potential when the curriculum and the method of appointing clinical instructors were reformed in the opening decades of the 20th century. And just to bring this to a conclusion, the three 19th century Australian medical schools were fashioned after those in Scotland. They were underpinned by the same educational philosophy that of producing competent general practitioners. They were university rather than hospital-based, and Scottish-trained teachers, more specifically Edinburgh graduates, were attached to all three Australian institutions. The Scottish influence was most keenly felt at the Sydney School, which is consciously created on the Edinburgh model by Anderson Stewart. He surrounded himself with a coterie of his own student contemporaries and did all in his power to further their professional careers in Sydney. As the Australian medical schools expanded and overcame their initial difficulties, students were attracted to them in ever-increasing numbers. By 1900, the Melbourne and Sydney schools had produced about 650 graduates between them and had another 500 students on their combined roles. Australians were gradually recruited into the three Australian medical schools, which were creating their own platforms and forging their own individual reputations. By the beginning of the 20th century, the three state universities were beginning to take on a distinctly Australian flavour. And by the time of the Great War, which was a defining feature in, in, in Australian development, by the time of the Great War, the vast majority of Australians looked to their own universities for their medical education. Thank you very much.